0: Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Jessica Luther, and I'm very excited about today's guest, Chloe Angel. This is very fun for me to have Chloe here. It's a real full circle moment for me. We've known each other for about nine years now, I think. And I talk about Chloe a fair amount, even if I don't always say her name, because it was Chloe at the beginning of 2013 who said to me, point blank, you should get paid to write, and then pitched a story for me to different outlets that landed at Bitch Magazine on Valentine's Day that year, and it was about romance novels. I learned so much from Chloe about how to pitch, and she gave me confidence to strike out on my own. Chloe played such a large part in my freelance career, and you can draw a straight line from that moment in 2013 to this one right now. That makes me so happy, Chloe. Will you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Hi, I'm
1: Chloe Angel. Hi, <laughs> I'm um, Chloe Angel, and I am a journalist and author, and the uh, the author of the new book Turning Point: How a New Generation of Dancers Is Saving Ballet from Itself, which is a reported work about ballet and about the future of ballet, about what has to change to make sure that ballet is a safe and fair and relevant and equitable art form that can survive and thrive in the 21st century.
0: Yes. So you've written this new important book that like pulls a curtain back on the ballet world. And now I'm going to do the thing that I always hate when people do to me, but I'm doing it to you. And I'm going to read the first paragraph of your book at you. I can also, I can also
1: recite it for you by heart. I'm I'm not going to, but I could, because it's what I do when I do book events. So I think I could probably do it, do it verbatim.
0: (laughs) It's perfect. So this is, I mean, you set it up really quickly for the reader. You write quote, Every day, in dance studios all across America, legions of children line up at the bar and take a ballet class. This book is about what they learn there, not just about dance, but about gender, race, and power, about the value of their bodies and minds, about their place in the world, both in and outside of dance. We're definitely going to get to some of that in a minute, but first, Chloe, let's get the tough question out of the way, because you're here on Burn It All Down, a feminist sports podcast. Is ballet sport? It
1: doesn't matter. (laughs) This is a, So this is a debate that sort of periodically roils the dance world. Is dance a sport? Is it an art? Is it both? Uh-huh. Is it somehow some other third category? And what I usually say is whether or not ballet is a sport is kind of irrelevant because dancers mm-hmm. get injured like athletes and get paid as well as artists. Um, you know, they, they sustain the kind of physical toll that athletes do with none of the support and very little of the cultural respect and resources that athletes get. And so whether or not they fall into either category is really irrelevant. I'm sort of more interested in what their experiences are rather than what label we should be slapping on them. And yes, I did just dodge the question.
0: (laughs) It was like such a good answer. I was like, man, I don't even know how to like get at this. Uh, What is your personal relationship to ballet? Like, were you a ballerina?
1: I was a, a very enthusiastic Ballet dancer as a child, um, and like a lot of girls, I did a range of styles: ballet, jazz, and what in Australia in the nineteen nineties passed for hip hop. Um, <laughs> oh no! <and laughs> oh, it's even worse than you think. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like a lot of girls who uh, who grew up dancing, it was it was made clear to me um, that my body was wrong. Um, part of mm. that was because uh, I took a detour into gymnastics for about six or seven years, and that sort of reshaped my young body in ways that I was told were incompatible with serious ballet training and serious other kinds of dance training. Um, part of it was that when I quit gymnastics, as happens for a lot of former gymnasts, I usually say I hit puberty, but really it feels more like puberty hits you, like mm. an 18-wheeler truck within you know hmm. one to four months of quitting serious gymnastics training. It's just like, pow. Um, wow. and I went back to, da- I went back to dancing, but, um, it was, it was obvious that I, my body was just wrong in a range of ways, including the injuries that it had sustained in that I had sustained in gymnastics, the sort of long-term repetitive stress injuries, um, that, you know, are still in my body now, 20 years later. Mm. And so I kept dancing, um, you know, for, for love, for passion. Um, I danced all through college. I danced with an all women's dance company on my college campus, which I loved, And when I moved to New York after college, I kept taking open, you know, adult drop-in dance classes in New York City, which means you're taking class with some really gifted, ambitious dancers. It's sort of a a magnet for everyone who wants to make it as a dancer
0: Hmm.
1: who isn't already in LA. And so that's, you know, that's my relationship to doing ballet. Um, And my relationship to watching ballet is that, you know, when I moved to New York, I thought, I mean... I was I was living a handful of subway stops from Lincoln Center. I mean, mm-hmm. how could I how can I not see as much ballet <laughs> as I could? And uh, it has become increasingly difficult to sit still through a ballet performance since I wrote this book. Um, in the same oh. way that I suspect it became uh-huh. difficult for you to sit still or even sit at all yeah. through a through a football game after you wrote On Sports and like Conduct.
0: Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Before we get into the details of the book, I thought it would be useful to our listeners to have an understanding of the ballet world in general. I Mm -hmm. wrote a piece on a ballerina a few years ago and that I really had to do a lot of work to like understand how it all how it all operates. But I thought, so how big is ballet? Like how many little girls and and boys are taking ballet in the U.S. and like how many make it to the top? I mean, what what do we need to understand about the
1: ballet world to understand the way that it operates? It's it's hard to put a firm number on it in part because arts organizations are so severely underfunded that they mm. can't afford to do a regular census of themselves. Sure, um, they can't afford to regularly count how many schools there are, how many students there are, and, and get a sense of that. Um, but you know, I think of ballet as the cultural equivalent to to football, and on the scale on the numerical scale of soccer of of girls soccer so big it's big it's big I mean there's a there's a there's a dance school in in basically every town of any size
2: in Mm -hmm.
1: in America um and uh while those may not be you know the kinds of dance schools that are turning out elite students um they they may be you know giving those people their initial training and then sending them on to a more elite institution you know more of a more of a magnet institution girls outnumber boys in ballet classes about 20 to 1. Wow. Um, So the vast vast majority of the students uh, that we're talking about the athletes artists dancers that we're talking about are girls Um, but boys are definitely there and um, it is, I've, I've had it said to me that masculinity actually sits at the heart of this book about ballet, which oh, that's I thought was an interesting.
0: My first question after this is about masculinity. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs>
1: um, and so you have, you know, you have these sort of local dance schools where students will take ballet and a range of other class, a range of other styles, jazz, lyrical, hip hop, um, tap, what have you. Uh, and, and then you have, um, the sort of more serious, uh, training, environments, uh, whether that means the dancers are competing in competitions um, or they're preparing sort of for a full-time pre-professional track. Um, And then you have um, the schools that are housed under the auspices of dance companies and are often feeder schools into the companies. Um, And then you have a a considerable and, at least before the pandemic, a growing competition scene Mm where dancers uh, compete either by themselves or in a part of a, or in a, a large group um, and are often competing for scholarship money or for exposure to gatekeepers who could give them uh, mm-hmm. training contracts uh, or spots in companies.
0: And then you were talking before about like all the time that you spent, you know, doing this when, even when you were doing it, like one thing about the ballet world, it's very, especially as you get towards like if you're an elite ballet dancer we're talking about a very insular space it reminds me of like when I learn about like the gymnastics world like all of your friends or other gymnasts you spend all your time in the gym that's very similar right for ballerinas
1: yes it's it's enormously time consuming and it also in similarly to gymnastics because you have people you know starting careers at 18 19 It used to be earlier. It's generally sort of post high school at this point. You get what Australians would call streamed. You get sort of um, special, you start specializing very, very early on, Mm -hmm. Um, which means, you know, by the time you get your first job at 18, you have already been practicing this art form for like maybe 13 years Maybe you started late at seven or eight, but realistically, you started at four or five or six, um, which means, you know, by the time you're by the time you're a fully fledged adult, you have spent functionally your entire life and certainly all of your formative years in this in this world, in this culture and in this sort of mindset.
0: So interesting to think about um, about your book. I did write my first question about masculinity because it is so interesting. You have a chapter titled Dance Like a Man, and you start that chapter by telling us that almost every man you interviewed for this book and his parents, like that they had a story about bullying. And then you end that chapter, though, and you and you say, quote, within the subculture of ballet, boys are rare and precious, sought after and recruited with scholarships and special programming. They're held to lower standards of talent and behavior girls are dispensable and ballet, boys are untouchable. And then you follow that chapter, Dance Like a Man with a chapter titled Princes and Predators about gendered abuse and violence within the sport. Uh, so there's so much here just in these like two chapters. And I was like, how do I even, my first question is you make all these connections and, and it, they're so clear and concise in in the book. Do the men that you talk to from the ballet world, do they make these connections too?
1: I think a lot of the young men that I talked to understood that they had been subject to special treatment Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of them would also say you know the very understandable sort of second half of that sentence which is but I also work very hard Mm -hmm. and this is sort of this is the like this is the sort of two-part hmm. sentence that you always say when someone says, you know, hey, you've had a, you've had an unearned leg up. And you can say, well, yes, I acknowledge my privilege, but also I worked really hard. Mm-hmm. And like both those things can be true at the same time. Those young men do work really hard. Um, and for me, the question is, do they also acknowledge that their hard work takes them further than an equivalent amount of hard work? done by a woman mm-hmm. who is one of 19 girls in her dance class. And he's one of one boy mm-hmm. <laughs> in his dance class. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's sort of when I was researching the original um, reported piece that I wrote about bullying, which was the article that made me think that there could really be a book here, in part because I just kept blowing my word count over and over again (laughs) and saying to my editor, like, I'll be done soon, I promise. And it just kept going and going and going. Um, But when I was researching that earlier article, you know, it was late 2017, which was a time when, you know, anyone who worked in media was thinking about, like, what are the exact... Environmental attributes that set someone up perfectly to be a predator to abuse power in a workplace situation because that's what most of the cases that I write about in the book are. They're, they are workplace situation. Mm-hmm. Dancers are workers and they are you know going into work every day. Their work just happens to be done in you know tights, pointe shoes, and looking at the ways in which boys in ballet are treated differently, and then they're in a sort of you know in a privileged minority. And are also coming into the ballet studio, into the metaphorical ballet studio, with a really well earned chip on their shoulder because of the mistreatment and the bullying that they experience outside of the ballet world. I just sort of thought, like, this seems like a perfect way to set someone up to abuse the power that they have. This mm-hmm. just seems like all the conditions seem right for abuse of power here, and so I was not surprised at all when there was a sort of a, cas- a cascade of, of allegations of sexual harassment and and worse um, in the ballet world. And I also, you know, think it's important to remember that a lot of the sexual harassment and abuse in the ballet world has just sort of happened, in over you know, historically has just happened in plain sight and has mm-hmm. just been considered normal and an acceptable way for, you know, someone like a George Balanchine to treat the dozens of young women who come through his company on a sort of endless hamster wheel of of talent um
0: and like he's famous for it right like people knew it like that was part of the whole mystique even yeah
1: the the sort of when I set out to write this book I was like okay I can't write a book that you know is naive and shocked to find that there's like a dirty ugly underbelly to this beautiful art form because like well yeah the dirty ugly underbelly is part of the mystique it's part of the appeal it's part of that dichotomy it's part of what fascinates people about ballet and so I didn't want to write a book that was like did you know that ballet is secretly fucked (laughs) (laughs) well yeah it's not that much of a secret it was out in the open I'm sorry if you have to to bleep that
0: we do not bleep on this show you do not have to apologize for cursing
2: Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: So did the women that you interviewed, did they understand this power dynamic that was very clear to them? Or did, or is it so normalized within ballet that even they have a hard time articulating it?
1: I think for people who have left, it's easier to articulate that. Mm, it's easier to look back sense. and say, oh boy, that wasn't great. You know, that was probably not okay when it happened. Um, and I thought it was okay. And so sort of, it's a fairly tangled mix of, you know, when you've grown when you've grown up in a culture that normalizes that kind of thing. And then you leave and only then can you look back at it and be like, oh God, I was really young Mm -hmm. to have that Mm -hmm. kind of a comment made to me or to have that, you know, that to have that that teacher, you know, relate to me in the in the way that they did. Um, And that's good that people are sort of after the fact coming to those realizations. And also I would love to move the timeline up so that, you know, people can recognize as it's happening. That that's not okay, right. um, and that it's not only the people who have left or who are on their way out, you know, because of retirement or some other reason, who you know speak out, and right. and sort of and and object. Yeah, then that's hard to change, right? Yeah, and and to be clear, that's not that's not a criticism of the people who no right who choose that kind of timing because it is a really small insular world, and the incentives are completely uh, aligned to silence and um, acquiescence and you know you 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 need a job you want to get your next job you want to keep your current job you want to be able to teach after you re- after you retire from from dancing what, whatever reason it is there are lots of reasons not to speak up until you have very little left to lose
0: right Oof. Well, let's move on to talk about race because you have a great chapter called the unbearable Whiteness of ballet. And I think when most people imagine ballet, they imagine the tall, thin white woman in her tutu up on her point shoes, Swan Lake. I mean, I just think that's that's our idea of it. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you learn from Black ballerinas and other ballerinas of color about the ballet world? Because I would guess there's probably way more of them <laughs> than our media or even our cultural ideas suggest that there are. So like... What kind of stuff did you learn from them when you were talking to them about being a person of color in the ballet world?
1: Well, before I answer that, I do want to call attention to like how incredibly white that sort of default mental image that you just mm-hmm. conjured is. So she, she is herself a, a white woman. Um, she is imagined to be slender, which is a body type mm-hmm. that exists you know across all races and ethnicities, but is like coded as white. Um, if she's doing Swan Lake, she's in a white tutu. And if mm-hmm. she's wearing point shoes, she's probably in you know quote flesh toned a pale like a pale pink, uh, point shoes with matching tights like it is the whitest possible. Like the only it's way so that person white. only way that person is whiter is if she's holding a sign that says live laugh love, like <laughs> it's the whitest possible image I could conjure yes. in my brain. Um yes. And so what I what I learned from from dancers of color, um, and that you know there are. Lots of East Asian dancers. There are lots of Latinx dancers. There are lots. There are lots more, you know, black dancers, um, both men and women, than you know a lot of media portrayals suggest, as you say. Um, and there have been for a really long time. Um, this is not a you know this is not a phenomenon that began with Misty Copeland, um, mm-hmm. and and I think she herself would acknowledge that she sort of stands on the shoulders of lots and lots of people. Um, you know, what I learned is that the, the work of pushing back that default is really tiring and often very lonely because a lot of these dancers are the only in their company, you know, mm-hmm. only Latino dancer, only Black dancer in particular. And the work of constantly saying, like, hey, this ballet in which all of the women have, like, their hair down and long and flowing, like... Was literally not designed for my body. So how are we? What are we gonna do to sort of make sure that my my body works in this in this ballet? Um, you know, the mm. the just even the the bare minimum of sort of asking to be able to wear tights and point shoes that that match their skin tone. It was only in twenty twenty after the sort of renewal of the protest arm of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, that a critical mass of dancewear companies committed to making point shoes in in all skin tones. Um, until then, a lot of dancers had had to. It's called pancaking. You basically buy a foundation that matches your skin tone, and you paint the the ribbons wow. and the and the shoes yourself. It's enormously time consuming. It degrades the quality of the point shoes. It's costly. I mean, foundation ain't free. Um, right. And. Right. And you know it's just like a constant reminder that like you have to find a way to make this default white art form work for you. And once companies did start making those point shoes, they would only make them in a couple of models. So if you happen, you know, point shoes come in all kinds of makes and hardness levels of stiffness and shapes, and um, everyone's looking for something slightly different in a point shoe. And so it was still a pretty like niche and bespoke product. Um, and so even just asking for bare minimum things like that. I mean, I had like 16-year-old girls who were at like one of the a 16-year-old girl who's at one of the best dance schools in the world, who was sort of backstage at her student showcase performance and there's like a bin of makeup. And guess how many makeup shades there were for her? Zero oh makeup shades. Guess how many, you know, under like quote, nude undergarments there were for her? None. And so you know what it, re- it, what it really I th- it illustrates, I think, is as hard as white girls and women are working in ballet because they're up against so many other girls and women, there's such a glut of girls and such a dearth of boys, as hard as the white girls and women are working, what I really wanted to do was to illustrate to white dance parents and to white dancers, like you could be working even harder and the black girl or the Latino girl next to you is to, hmm. you know, to, to achieve what she's achieved.
0: This may, as you're talking, it makes me think the other thing that's, I mean, ballet is a sport in the way that like sport is lower C conservative, right? That like people just hang on to tradition for tradition's sake and like, will fight that so hard without any real reason outside of like, we've always done it this way, but that's such a force that is so difficult to shift in any other direction. And I imagine that's what you know, if, if ballet world, as you said at the beginning, like if it's going to make it and be relevant and that that's a lot of work that people have to do. And the final chapter of your book is titled How Ballet Survives. So you're suggesting that it will. Um, I don't want to tell like all, I don't want you to tell us all the things because people should go read your book and find out all the things. We're like, what are one or two things that need to change in order to help ballet survive at this point?
1: To your earlier point about holding on to to tradition for tradition's sake Um, one of the most valuable tools I had when I was writing this book was that I was living with and being edited by non-ballet people so my fiance who did not grow up in the dance world and my editor who also did not really have much familiarity with ballet and so they both acted as sort of an outsider perspective to pull me up when I found my insider ballet logic taking over um mm-hmm. so they you know they were there to say like okay but why why would we why why do it that way is is there not a better way to do it and like the ballet part of me yeah. would say well yeah there, like there is a better way to make point shoes but like they don't look as good on stage and it's like who gives a shit like it's gonna stop yeah. for it's gonna stop 14 year olds from breaking their ankles like it's gonna allow dancing adults to have a prolonged career like who gives a shit what it looks like and obviously this is where the tension between you know is ballet a sport or an art comes into play but one thing i noticed was that every time you know you try and make an argument for functional progress it's like well we can't do that it will look bad and since we're an aesthetic art form we you know we can't deliberately do things that will look bad um uh i had a a physical therapist tell me that there is basically no safe way to dance on point but there are safer ways than what we currently do Mm, um
0: interesting okay so like football playing american football right like there's you're not going to find a safe way but like we should be moving towards a safer way that's interesting
1: and and again like if you look at the technological advances that we've made in football in, in helmets in cleats in like all of these tools of those sports have been engineered to within an inch of their lives and they're constantly being improved how can we you know how can we make this safer how can we make this better pointe shoes have barely evolved in like a century and when someone came along and designed a pointe shoe that um was safer for the feet and by the way did not get exhausted and have to be thrown out nearly as often as a traditional pointe shoe there was a huge backlash people said it was ugly and it was cheating and you know it was against tradition oh yeah they're they're a cheater shoe because they do a lot of the work for you and the 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 not particularly well veiled uh undertone was this is too comfortable and too easy and you should be uncomfortable and you should be suffering (laughs) which Um, says so much about ballet (laughs) it does it does um so we you, we could do that. We could prioritize a, what one physical therapist called a foot forward shoe and say, we don't care what it does to the the line of the leg. We don't care what it looks like. We are interested in protecting the feet, ankles, knees, hips, and lower backs of dancers. Um, that's one thing we could do. And then dancers could actually buy them and like ensure that there is a market for that product. Um That's one thing we could do. Um, We could also get really serious about gender neutral pedagogy. And that doesn't just mean, you know, holding boys to the same standards of, of skill and behavior as the girls in the class, you know, not giving them special treatment or special attention just because they're rare and, you know, let's do anything we can to keep them from quitting. Um, That means, you know, really looking at the places in ballet where there are steps that are for boys and men and steps that are, like, for girls and say, well, everyone gets to do everything Um, and we're going to refer to students as dancers and not as girls and boys or ladies and gentlemen, which is very common um, in both schools and companies. Um, And it also means, you know, thinking about, okay, let's assume that in this small dance school in rural Iowa, we are going to have gender non-conforming students. We're going to have non-binary students. How are we going to make sure that they feel welcome and valued and like they can come to the school and develop their ballet talent, even though ballet traditionally has this incredibly rigid gender binary that traditionally would not have a place for them? How are we going to make sure that we make a place for them?
0: I love it. That's beautiful. Do you have a favorite ballet?
1: Whoa, it's like asking if I have a favorite rom com. Um, do I have a <laughs> do favorite? you? Ballet? I would like to hear that one too. <laughs> I do. Okay, favorite rom com is Notting Hill. Um, favorite ballet is um, a really lovely um, excerpt from a contemporary ballet by Christopher Wheeldon, who um, was a dancer at the Royal Ballet and then a choreographer at New York City Ballet and won a Tony for an American in Paris. Um, hmm. And it's called After the Rain. It's a beautiful part de deux, um, set to um, Spiegel im Spiegel uh, by Ava Pert. And it is just a really gorgeous, simple looking, but I'm sure not simple to execute, um, pas de deux that, uh,
0: that I love. Thank you so much, Chloe. Thanks for coming on. Burn it all down. Oh, like, thank you for having me. Such a thrill for me. Like you've made my whole day. I'm smiling so hard during this whole thing. Just looking at your face. I'm base. so glad <laughs> I'm so glad to be here. Tell our listeners where they can find you and your work. Uh, you can buy Turning Point anywhere you buy books.
1: And if buying books is not in the budget right now, you can ask your local library to purchase it for you. Um, which, by the way, is... Like a gift not just to you, but to the entire community for a really long time. Um, big fan of big fan of people asking their libraries to to buy the book. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Chloe Angel, C-H-L-O-E-A-N-G-Y-A-L, and on Instagram at Writes. But also
0: on Instagram is your dog. <sighs> oh yeah, the
1: puppy. Zelda. Like the cutest (laughs) dog.
0: So you should definitely go follow Chloe in all the different places. Thank you.